My name is Rebecca Bruton, and you're listening to The Drop and the Turning, a podcast about music, place, and change, produced in partnership between New Works Calgary and CJSW Campus and Community Radio. Today, I'll be interviewing Robin Jacob, who is a Vancouver-based composer, pianist, and vocalist. What you're hearing now is a collaboration between Robin Jacob and harpist, vocalist, Elisa Thorne. This project is called The Giving Shapes. attention to today? Well, today I slept in because I it was kind of the day I could. <laughs> and so I have a very like cute little morning routine with a little bit of CBC radio and, and some coffee. So that was really nice because I didn't feel like I had to rush. So I feel like I spent a lot of time paying attention to taking things a little bit slower. I'm also really paying attention to my grandma's home because they have COVID in her residence now. And so every day there's a little bit of a checkup going on and just seeing how things are progressing. Thankfully so far she's she's not one of the residents who has it, but it's traveling really quickly through the home. And so You know, it just feels like a matter of days. So that's really on my mind as well. For anybody just tuning in, my name is Rebecca Bruton, and you're listening to The Drop and The Turning on CJSW. Today I'm interviewing Vancouver-based composer-performer Robin Jacob. What you're hearing now is an excerpt from her 2020 percussion piece, Transference and Zoosemiotics, performed by Third Coast Percussion. Jacob, and um, I'm a composer and performer and and educator living here. I live in Vancouver, um, which is the unceded land of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh people. And over the past few months, uh, it's been sort of like a generative period because it's been not a time of presentation so much and so uh, over the past few weeks actually I've been working with 
the Giving Shapes, which is myself and Elisa Thorne, who is a harpist and vocalist. And we've been working with Mind of a Snail, who are a, a puppetry duo based here as well. And we're developing a new show together from scratch. So the visual element and the music element is all, as best as we can, we're trying to develop it concurrently. Aside from that, I have been, I feel very like transitioning between projects. So I've been sort of dreaming about things that I want to work on next while um, doing a little bit of um, sort of studying, I guess. I'm taking a poetry course online right now. So just trying to like, it's sort of like a sponge phase. I go through sponge phases every once in a while where I just take in as much as I can. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of what's happening over the past little while. I'm interested in the poetry course you're taking and I'm wondering what you've been noticing in terms of poetry as text as opposed to poetry in songs. Yeah, I'm I'm actually taking the Coursera course Mod Po and it's been really fun because it is so it's so self-directed. You can participate as much or as little as you want, which is exactly what I need right now. And I guess what I've always admired in lyric material is when artists can involve lyrics that well I there's sort of two different things that, that I really enjoy. One is when the, the poetry just fits so well with the sound or the lyric fits so well with the sound that even when you read the lyrics um, as opposed to listening to the song, you can hear the song. Like it, it just embodies the, they embody each other really well. I really admire that. But I also really like it when uh, songwriters and musicians can work with a very abstract form in the poetry and and not make the poem become lyrics when it really is a poem that has a more fluid form. So I kind of, yeah, that seems very hard to describe. But um, yeah, it, when I think of like poetry versus lyric uh i'm not sure that i really see no there is a difference because when i'm thinking about adapting things that i've written as poems into lyrics i definitely move things around to suit the song and that just has to happen sometimes something that has shown up in your work over the past few years just for listeners uh i no Robin's work. I was initially introduced to it through her art pop project, Only a Visitor. And Robin, can you talk about what your role is in Only a Visitor? Sure, yeah. Only a Visitor is a band. Uh, it's a five-piece band, and um, I'm super lucky to have the team that I have. Um, together, we've kind of gone through the gamut of band life <laughs> done several tours and I approached the people in the band I guess I only really knew 
Kevin Romain, who um, is my drummer. He's the only person I knew before I started the project. Um, but I was looking for singers, mainly, and then I kind of brought in um, Kevin Romain. And then Jeff Gammon, who plays bass, was also introduced to me through the singers. And Selena Kurtz and Emma Postel, who are vocalists in the group, they um, were recommended to me by a friend. And I'm pretty sure in our email I was like, do you want to join a fun band? And like, when we get paid after the gig, we'll probably just have enough to go get pizza, but then we'll have pizza and it'll be really fun. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, totally. And so started that way. I guess I was really interested in exploring vocal harmony and having a band, I guess, where the vocalists were like the guitar uh, sort of encapsulates the inspiration for that. And so, um, yeah, and so I, I write the material and do most of the arranging, but when we put everything together, um, it becomes like way more collaborative. So it ends up being a, a nice way of, everyone can sort of feel like they can put input in and make um, suggestions to make everything just sound how it should sound. <laughs> I'm going to play an excerpt from Ghosts, which is from the 2019 Only a Visitor album, Technicolor Education. Ghosts inside of other ghosts, the soul of the town packed up and about what this role is as a your band director and you're also writing music for the band but then it's open enough that it can feel like there's shared ownership yeah um I think that's really important I mean they they know that it's my band <laughs> there's no like 
there's no lie there but it's to have them feel comfortable like if they feel like oh this should really be this way or I think this would sound better like this to sort of foster that so that they feel comfortable offering those things and then uh, yeah there's this sort of leadership this balance in leadership right that I think when you invite them in it feels like yeah if they feel like they have a little bit of agency in the group then it it makes them feel just more a part of it instead of like I really don't want them to feel like just hired guns because they're not they're they're actually completely irreplaceable and so um yeah that collective like trying to foster that collective energy um I think is really important and you know they all have their own projects too so I think they 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 do have the drive to create and and do their own thing and they and they have an avenue for that as well. So it, it I think the balance like with the personnel and with what is expected within only a visitor I think is is pretty clear and I think that's maybe part that helps is the clarity there. So I know a few years ago you started broadening your scope and shifting more of your creative energy towards creating compositions in, I think, what could be considered a more traditional sense of the role of the composer. And you've been writing quite um, quite a few more pieces for bands and ensembles that you don't play in. And I'm interested in what interested you about making that shift. And then I want to talk specifically about text and story and voice across your projects yeah um actually i feel like i i made the shift to go into more pop music so it it kind of feels like that was the shift initially and then because i'm more classically trained i guess okay so i'm gonna back up a little bit i finished my bachelor's degree in music in 2011 which is so long ago now And I I haven't been in school since. And it really kind of like destroyed the part of me that maybe needed to be destroyed, but also I've been having to recover. It's sort of really, I don't know, I find it really complicating, but, or complicated. I learned a lot when I was in school. And was that a specifically a piano classical performance degree? No, I wasn't even, like, good enough for that. I was just doing a general studies degree, which is a bit of everything and also feels like a bit of nothing. I mean, I learned so much, I can't even... I learned a lot after that just from playing music with people as well. But basically after school, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Because I also was dealing with an injury, so I couldn't really perform. But I really like performing. And so I started writing kind of like comedy songs under the name Fistful of Snacks. And then eventually they became more serious and I said, okay, I have to start a band. This is like becoming, it's evolved into a different thing. And so I started Only a Visitor. And over the years, I've been able to try to wrap back together um, my affinity with the DIY scene and new music and what I really love in contemporary music practice. And so, yeah, coming back to the more 
traditional composer capital C has been really fun because then I can kind of access what I feel like I left behind but not out of choice um and so it's kind of fun because I have this experience I feel like it's and and so many composers I think are being more celebrated for having this diverse experience in different worlds um and it's becoming less of a novelty now um that people you know I would say all people have like diverse experiences and um, are able to kind of bring bring all these elements together. Because there's, for example, like I'm, I'm so attracted to the raw quality and sincere and like quite artful choice making in the DIY scene that I think has really influenced my writing. Um, but I'm also, you know, when, when he, you know, oftentimes at home, like we listen to more classical or new music stuff than, than that now. And it, I guess it goes through phases, but yeah. So kind of bridging those things together has been sort of what's been happening, I think over the past couple of years. And so right now I feel like I'm kind of flexing in the more traditional composer world and, so I'm excited about what comes next because as I'm starting to become more familiar with the composer world, I'm starting to see, I don't know, I'm just starting to wonder what are the limits of this and where, what, what's possible. Hi there, listeners. My name is Rebecca Bruton, and you're listening to The Drop and The Turning. This is an interview with Robin Jacob, Vancouver-based composer and performer. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from Robin's 2020 piece for string orchestra, A World in Each.
when I was getting ready for this interview, I took a listen through pretty much all of the all of the pieces, the score based pieces that I was able to find online, and then also took a listen to each of your albums. And one thing that I was really noticing in your compositions that you have available is you have quite a few pieces that are just for voice or for a strange combination. For example, there's the one that's for voices and then MIDI controlled bells, which I really love. And then you have one that's voices singing into these tubes, amplified cones. And those ones are really clearly vocally based and they almost read they read in an easier way as choral music or or I can see that there's choral harmonies that are showing up in those. And then in the orchestra work, A World in Each, and the percussion ensemble piece, Transference and Zuo Semiotics, there's definitely voice and text being used in each of those but I noticed there's kind of this inverted relationship where only a visitor and then the giving shapes and then your more voice-based compositional pieces they're all very song forward and then in these other two pieces it's like they're clearly instrumental pieces but then the voice kind of bubbles up in them in these surprising, unusual ways. And so I'm wondering, what is your creative relationship between text, story, and representation as it shows up in different ways across these projects? And how does it feel the same or different to write instrumental music that involves the voice in some way, versus music that is more focused around the song. Cool. Yes, I actually, I, I think when I write songs, I like to imagine weird combinations of vocal effects that I can find um, to use as sort of like a, um, a palette in the song. And so, there's whether I use the form of the song or not I like to imagine using vocal texture kind of as a sculptural medium in some way but then yeah I also end up having text to deal with as well so that sort of binds me in a way and then I I just love playing with song um, but in the other pieces I guess I'm just really obsessed with using voice <laughs> in things and in the um, orchestral and the small ensemble piece I'm really drawn to people who don't identify foremost as vocalists um, I'm drawn to having them use their voice because I find that it can it can get this like really um sort of is real quite magical quality I think when people are using their voice um, and they almost aren't fully confident in using it and this sort of like this really delicate vulnerability which is what is I think 
in the transference in zoo semiotics, I think was, it worked there, which I was really excited about. Also was making them sing uncomfortably high and, and they were, they were really good about it. <laughs> they were, they had um, a good attitude about it. So yeah. And, and then for the, a world in each, yeah, I just, I just love the texture of the voice and I love the texture of, of groups of voices. Um, and so when I have it available, even if it wasn't implicitly available, it's, it's available to me. So I was like, I couldn't help it, but add it in. And I think that's sort of the embodiment of a voice. It, it sort of brings a whole new level um, to a piece, especially if you're not expecting it. Something I've noticed in the new classical world, the new music world over the past few years, there has been a shift with composers like Jennifer Walsh, um, who wrote that wonderful article, I think, The New Discipline. There's been a number of people who work explicitly in the composition world who've been problematizing the ways that the body is used in that world. And the ways that there's there's an idea almost that the body is not present on stage, but then performers are trained in such a specific way around their bodies, and yet they're not aware of their body as a performance, the same way that a performance artist or a theater artist would be 
yet they're doing this thing on a stage. And then I think this these questions have also been brought up by the presence of injury. There's so much injury in this world, and most of that is coming from repetitive strain and from these hyper-specific ways of using the body, but then kind of a forgetting or absenteeism of the body as a whole. And something I really notice when you have these moments of these performers who are instrumental performers are suddenly using their voices. It's like, oh, there's a body here. And I just find that really compelling because it's like the body is, it's kind of imperfect and messy and a voice is kind of a weird organ. So then suddenly when you have a bunch of these young men percussionists using their voices in this vulnerable way, I find it really exciting. So I just really appreciate that. And it kind of grounds the piece in this physicality in a new way. Yeah, thank you. I That's like so well put. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's totally. I mean, this is the thing is when I'm in the process, I just sort of, I work a lot on intuition. And I, it's so interesting to sort of talk through this some, this with somebody because it's sort of like, most of me is like, yeah, totally. And then some of me is like, did I consider that? <laughs> There's a little bit of that. Um, but what you're saying is it, it rings um, for me so much because as a musician that is sort of conservatory trained, you don't often get to deal with the fact or the skills around yeah, embodied performance until you're at a really high level. And then you, and then you're like, oh yeah, I'm performing. What does it mean to be performing? What am I, you know, what is the practice of performing Uh, and, and how it's a whole other skill really. Um, And what does it entail and bring with it? And I think, I think that's changing. I think that's changing. I like to think that's changing. Um, And with the the sort of the boundaries between different practices are dissolving um i think it will be good for something like this because people are starting to it's just getting old these delineations are just not aren't they're not servicing the work anymore i think and there's all this really exciting you know what it reminds me of is like like an estuary or a border between two different like ecological zones. So if you, for example, you have a a, a grassland and then some woods, the edge between the grassland and the woods is going to be where a lot of stuff happens, like different creatures. And there's just a lot of opportunity in that space of difference. And I think that artists are really taking advantage of that space right now. Um, and so I, I find it really exciting um, because when you think about what is it for, it's, it's, you just, you can't keep it in a box. When you're writing a piece for like, for example, that percussion ensemble, are you, are you thinking in some way about not yourself as a performer, but the experience of performance? Like, are you really thinking about their bodies and how they're using them when they're performing? Um, I think in some ways, and I think in some ways I'd like to do that more, 
there is the basic sort of considerations that I, I like to think, is it satisfying to play? Um, not that it has to be fully idiomatic, but is it challenging in a fun way? Is it is it going to be satisfying? Is there a part where you can just like get into it? And so I feel like having that those considerations in a piece, if your performers are happy and excited about playing it, they're going to want to play it more. And I think, um, and it's going to sound better. So I think in those ways I'm thinking about it, but I feel like there's room to take that much further. Listeners who are just tuning in, my name is Rebecca Bruton, and I'm here in interview with Robin Jacob. This is a piece of hers called Transference and Zoosemiotics. So I'm interested in that you kind of navigated to this more ecological topic because I really want to talk you about talk to you about the role of ecology and place in your lyrics and in the ways that you're thinking about music. I've got this sense that there's an interest in environment and ecological ethics that kind of, uh, it keeps showing up in your work. Um, is that correct? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I spend as much time as I can um, in the woods, <laughs> just around outside and in this place. And I think so much of my identity and what I'm attached to is grounded in place. And I really feel it like when I travel, for example, and it's like, and you just feel the, the sort of, you're like, oh, it smells different here. Or like, oh, that's like the way things weave together the plants is like, it creates a different spectrum here or, you know, these little things. Um, and so I've, yeah, I, I think it, it really is just like, and I, I just, you know, I just care a lot about, about looking after the place that you are in. A lot of it more recently in the past, maybe eight years has been also facilitated by my obsession with mycology. <laughs> And through mushroom foraging and just learning about species and just sort of getting a different sense of like a different eye for looking has, has been a real vehicle for me to learn about just the, 
the incredible diversity in such small spaces that we have all around us. And so, yeah, it has a really big role to play in the inspiration for me. In terms of a piece that's been directly inspired by ecology and specifically acoustic ecology is this percussion ensemble piece we've been talking about, Transference and Zoosemiotics. I read through the piece of writing that you did for the soundist zine, and in it you discuss the learning about the grey humpback whale song and how they learn these songs from each other, and there's kind of this acoustic flocking process, and and how learning about that informed a lot of your creative process for this percussion ensemble piece. And something I was really interested in in your writing, which I'm going to read back to you, is that you're dealing with this extra musical material, but you're going about it in a way that is a little bit deeper than exclusively mimicking or representing the patterns that whales are making. So you wrote, through this experiment, I wanted to explore whether artwork could center the experience of other living beings, not only to try to move away from self, but also provide a platform where other forms of life to project, provide a platform for other forms of life to project their own creations and expressions. And I was really interested in this because it was more dealing with, could you maybe talk about the process that you learned about how whales are actually learning these songs from one another? Yeah, I was so impressed, I guess is the word, when I learned that these whales basically learn their song by rote and they would copy other whales and the accuracy to which they did this, do this, is, I think, comparable to any um, super virtuosic musical practice. Uh, yeah, so I was really impressed by this sense of sort of communal building that they do because they would change these songs subtly and different whales would copy the changes. And so I, then I was just like obsessing over the idea that this was like trending <laughs> and like how they would make, they would like make decisions over favoring one um, change and keeping that and um, you know there's so there's this autonomy uh, and sort of taste making within this like collective creation um, so that was really intriguing to me and I, I started thinking about uh, I guess it was sort of tricky I I didn't want to just write a piece that was like here's a bunch of whale sounding things. I'm more, I was more obsessed in like about what does it mean for these creatures to be engaged in this long form creative project? And what, what is the experience of that like? And so, yeah, I kind of sort, I was, I was thinking, well, maybe 
if I use the, the because form plays such a large role in these whale songs. Like they have, they have a very specific form, um, which in Payne and McVeigh have this article that I used very heavily. It's in the Science magazine from I think 1971, where they they put together these sonograms and they analyze them. And, and they could put it into like this is this is a phrase this is this is a motive and this is how it repeats and it, it was really quite amazing to see um, and so I started thinking okay what's in the form maybe the form is something I can use and then instead of creating something that sounds like whale sounds I was thinking about the process of learning by rote which actually didn't make it into the piece in the end. Um, but I was considering having some kind of rote learning, live learning thing happening in the piece. And it just got a little bit complicated for where I was at at the time. <laughs> but what I did want to create in the sound was, um, I guess, which would have been my reflection on it, was sort of this sense of, this sense of awe and this um, idea of the sort of uh, the, I guess, the universe that these whales are creating together. And, but yeah, I ended up getting more attached to the form that they were using and using the form of their song as trying to mimic that as my as the form that I was going to use. And something that didn't end up getting used in the piece, but. I was thinking about a lot was because people have been recording whale songs and some people are actually playing them back into the oceans. I was sort of thinking about what, what is that for the whales? Is it, is it like seeing a photograph or listening to your own voice recorded for the first time, which is if you haven't, I mean, most people have heard the sound of their own voice um, but the first few times you do, it's a little bit like, oh, that's what's happening. So I was, th- I was a little bit thinking about what is it, what is that experience like for these creatures to have this mirror all of a sudden flipped up into their view. But yeah, and just on on the whole, I guess is sort of this practice of of listening to. I mean, this is in the ideal world. Like you know, this is all ideal. And whether or not it actually it ends up being fully translated into the work is sort of the struggle. But ideally, like when we really listen to another creature community, what do we get from that, or what can we learn from that? And that's sort of like the the base of that project. How do you feel that those questions actually showed up in the score that you ended up making? And not only in the score, but in the process of performers figuring out how to perform the score. Mm, I don't know if I have a full answer for that. Definitely the process of working with Third Coast Percussion, who commissioned the piece. They were so supportive, and so it was very collective. Um, Luckily, this happened mostly before the pandemic, so I was in Chicago for a couple of the workshops where... We played through piece, pieces of the work um, together, and they offered suggestions, and and so and we could actually work with the piece in the room with the sound, which I think 
for composers, you don't always get that opportunity. So that was really great. But in terms of how much of the idea made it into the piece that you maybe anyone else could glean from looking at the score, or I'm not sure how much can be taken out. Like if without the context, I, I don't know. But and I, I I'm not even sure how much of that is a priority for me. But I, I mean I would like there to be a relation, and I I don't know if I have enough distance from it yet to like see if that is a success or if that happened but it is something that in the process I'm thinking about Something about that piece and your writing around that piece that really interested and interested me was I think there's a really clear sense of ethics that you're expressing. You have quite a bit of care in how you're thinking about in how you're thinking about the relationship between a human and a being that's so utterly non-human and yet it has this behavior that we're able to recognize as a bridging point, a, a kind of empathetic bridging point. They are doing songs in some way, in a way that's recognizable. Um, but I think you're being very careful about not anthropomorphizing and not not trying to be too empathetic towards what they're doing. Uh, not saying that they are humans or that that's the way in to having a more right relation with them as humans. And I'm wondering if this sense of ethic, first of all, does it show up 
do you feel there's an ethical relationship between the composer and the score and the performer? And that's sort of the first question in terms of the actual work. But then on a bigger level, I'm wondering if there's other ways right now that you're feeling compelled, uh, this kind of ethical question around um, framing or creating a new platform for a different species is that, is that a question that you're continuing to work with and is it showing up in other ways that you're creating right now or with intention towards the future? Yeah, I think in terms of really listening to other little creatures and big creatures around us, I think that it's something that we are sort of discouraged to do and... I think that even through the attempt to, you know, quote, listen to another organism or is a, is a way of relating and, and, and giving the space to relate on the other's terms. And I think that that relationship furthering is one of the ways in for people to nurture um, a better, more holistic relationship with the world around us. So it is something that I'm always thinking about. I haven't started on this project, but I, and I don't know where it will go, but I do in sort of the, the bank at the back of my mind of things that I would like to try someday is to delve into working somehow with lichen because lichen is sort of an embodiment of this idea of symbiotic living. Um, and it's everywhere and it can live almost everywhere. <laughs> and so I find that really fascinating. Um, just like people are everywhere and are quite adaptable. In terms of the performer and the score um, and the ethics there, I, I think I, I, I consider as much as I can like to be, um, the importance of being generous to the performer. I think that's really important because the re I think in some ways the relationship that you build between the performer and the composer is, is just is, is equally important to the relationship that you have between the work and the audience. So the, that has to be a, a big consideration for me. And I think that when you have that nurtured, it, everything is, the product is better, the experience, which I think is a big part of, like, of the work that is better. And so I think, yeah, that idea of generosity is sort of, it, I think it's the ground level for me when it comes to that.
Now, a question that's relating right to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also tying into this ecological questioning in your work. You mentioned that you like to do a lot of research when you're preparing. When I was reading through this writing you had done on this piece, I was really interested in the way that you're you're really engaging with ideas as they've been presented through science. So ideas about ecology, about interspecies relationships, as they're being mediated via the scientific discipline. And then you're mediating them yet again through your creative discipline as a composer and a musician. And something that I think has become really apparent throughout COVID-19 is, for one, it's increasingly impossible to deny the interdependence that exists not only between humans and other humans, but humans and the non-human world, which kind of what we're living through is our absolute, our absolute intimacy with this virus and the way that that has changed our material existences so much on a global level. This has brought a kind of hyper-focus to what is in our most immediate environment. And I know for myself, this has brought, I feel like I'm way more aware of like the rabbit in my yard because I just see the, I'm not going anywhere and I get to watch the rabbit's behavior every single day. And I've been able to see this jackrabbit as it changes from its summer colors to its winter colors. And the rabbit has become accustomed to me as well. I'm wondering if COVID specifically has changed how you relate not only to ecological ideas or ideas about the environments we live in, but the more immediate sense of the environment that you live in. Firstly, I definitely feel extremely grateful to be where I am because the place where we live here is just it has so much it's so bountiful and it still um holds a lot of potential in terms of the degradation level it doesn't have let me just reword this where i'm living here shows signs of you know environmental ecological collapse for sure but within biking distance I can get to my favorite forest area which is the lower Seymour Valley so I feel like really really grateful that I can access that and um, yeah I just really the, the main thing has just been feeling so incredibly lucky renews my attachment to to this place and to like my dedication to seeing it thrive. Final question, moving forward in your creative work and your work as a human in the world, what do you feel is the most urgent to pay attention to? Oh my gosh. Hmm. I think, just to bring it 
I, I don't want to make it all really nebulous and overwhelming. And I think that's something that's an urgent thing for me is to make people able to enact the things they want to enact. Like, a, it's almost like fighting despondency or apathy instead of saying like, okay, the most urgent thing is climate crisis. We all know that. <laughs> so actually, I think the most urgent thing is letting people feel the agency that they don't feel that they have. I think that's a really important thing. So it's actually one of our main considerations in this new project that we're working on with the giving shapes in mind of a snail is how do we leave people feeling like just give them a bone a little bit like like you can do this without it being like super hokey and we're also looking at like well what's in that is there an element of denial in this hope is denial a way of getting to hope what is in hope that makes things possible we're asking all these sorts of questions but I think that is a really interesting place for me right now is like how do we continue without sliding into well what's the point because that is kind of the next big challenge on the horizon I think been listening to The Drop and The Turning, a new podcast brought to you in partnership between New Works Calgary and CGSW Campus and Community Radio. My guest on the show today was composer-performer Robin Jacob. The Drop and The Turning is produced on occupied land. In the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, I honor and acknowledge that I live and create as an uninvited guest here at Mokinstis. Mokinstis, where the Bow and Elbow Rivers converge, sits within Treaty 7, signed with varying degrees of good faith on September 22, 1877, which encompasses the traditional territory and oral practices of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika Kainai Pikani, as well as the Stony Nakoda and Sutina Nations. I acknowledge this territory is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. I seek to liberate truth and work in solidarity toward decolonization and equal nationhood of all Indigenous peoples.